disciples that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. Those words, and he was reckoned among the transgressors, come from the book of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, which speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord. Uh, For some time, Jesus has been explaining to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised again the third day. And he's told them that, in fact, these things must come to pass because they were prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And now, as he is approaching the cross, he recites a line from Isaiah 53. And he says that this prophecy is even now being fulfilled in him. In a few short hours, Jesus is going to be hung on a cross between two thieves. He is going to be numbered with the transgressors. And he wants it to be very clear that this is no accident. Everything that Jesus is going to endure will be fulfilling the promises of Scripture. It's all according to the plan of God. It's all absolutely necessary. And in fact, it's the whole reason Christ ever came to the earth to begin with. And in the Scriptures, it was all spelled out in advance. Jesus placed a great emphasis on this point because the fact that he fulfilled all of these prophecies uniquely authenticated what he claimed about himself. It shows us that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the one whom God has sent, bearing the very words of God. And he's the one to whom every man one day will give an account. And one of the most important ways that we know this is we see that Jesus is the one key that unlocks every Old Testament prophecy. Things written centuries before his birth. Things he had no control over. Things impossible to a mere man all found a striking fulfillment in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Making it undeniable that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now the entire Old Testament is filled with prophecies about Christ. But tonight we want to look at just one. The one that Jesus cited on the way to the cross. The song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to follow with us. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Of all the messianic prophecies, surely this is the crown jewel. It speaks so plainly and so openly of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's often been referred to as the gospel of Isaiah. Uh, It provides the clearest description of the substitutionary atonement of Christ to be found anywhere in the Bible including the New Testament. And yet it was written some 700 years before the events took place. You see, after the death of Solomon, the United Kingdom of Israel was divided. The northern ten tribes came to be called the Kingdom of Israel. The southern two tribes was the Kingdom of Judah. 
And Isaiah was a prophet to those southern two tribes, the kingdom of Judah, around the year 700 B.C. And in his days, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them away captive. And Isaiah warned Judah that God would bring the same fate on them if they did not repent. And for a time, Judah trusted in the Lord, uh, and they were miraculously delivered from the Assyrians. But in the, in the end, they remained rebellious and wicked. And Isaiah prophesied that even Judah and Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians, and which came to pass many years later after the death of Isaiah. But before he died, Isaiah also prophesied that after the Babylonian captivity, Judah would be permitted to return to the land. Jerusalem and the temple would be rebuilt. Isaiah even wrote down the name of the king who would do this, Cyrus. These were precious, comforting promises to the children of Israel. And in the midst of these promises... Isaiah begins to speak of the servant of the Lord. Now, the nation of Israel itself uh, is the Lord's chosen servant. But it becomes clear that Isaiah is beginning to speak of an individual. One righteous Israelite who will suffer for the sins of the people. One who will finally deal with the nation's real underlying problem, the sin in their own hearts. This portion of Scripture actually begins with the last few verses of chapter 52. So look in Isaiah 52, 13. We read this. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled, and be very high. First, we see that the servant of the Lord will deal prudently or wisely. This means he's going to succeed in everything he sets out to accomplish. And what's going to happen? As a result, he's going to be exalted. And this is emphasized by the use of those three similar verbs. He will be exalted and be extolled and be very high. Nevertheless, we find that before he is exalted, he will first be brought very low. Continue reading in verse 14. As many were astonished or astonished at thee, his visage, his appearance was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. You see what uh, he's saying here. Just as those many nations were horrified at the terrible judgments that fell on Israel, so also the great judgment that's going to fall on this servant is going to be the occasion of many nations being cleansed. This servant will sprinkle many nations. You see that in verse 15. What does that mean? This is the same word you find throughout the Old Testament to indicate cleansing and purging of sin, such as the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. This is what the servant's going to do. He's not just going to make an atonement uh, for the nation of Israel. He's also going to make an atonement for many nations, many Gentiles. But in doing so, he's going to 
become greatly disfigured. His visage was so marred more than any man. His appearance is going to be so damaged that he will scarcely appear to be a man. Continuing in verse 15, The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which they had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Even the kings of these Gentile nations will be brought to silence as they uh, hear and see things the like of which they have never heard before. And then he goes in here to verse 1 of chapter 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Not everyone who hears the report of this servant will believe it. Uh, the work of this servant uh, of the Lord is the work of the Lord himself. It is the arm of the Lord bringing salvation. But this is going to be revealed to a limited number. Because this servant is not going to be born in a palace, but he will be born in obscurity. Verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form, nor comeliness, that is, no majesty, no splendor. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You see, this servant is going to grow up before him, that is, in the sight of the Lord himself. And one day, this servant of the Lord will appear before his Jewish brethren, but he will not be clothed in royal robes. They will consider him insignificant, ordinary, and in fact they will hate him. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The servant of the Lord will be despised and hated by men. The one who came to sprinkle many nations will be rejected. And even his own fellow Israelites will turn their faces away from him as he endures unspeakable violence. But what the people do not realize is that he is suffering for them. Verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. This servant of the Lord will suffer greatly, and yet he will be suffering for the sins of the people. He's not suffering for his own sins. He's suffering for the sins of his people as their substitute in their place. And in fact, we're going to see that this servant has no sin of his own. He's an innocent man. And he's carrying the sins of a guilty multitude. What kind of violence is being done to the servant? Our text says he is being wounded. Literally, that means pierced. The servant is being pierced. Pierced. He's also being bruised. 
Uh, and the text also mentions his stripes, which means he's being brutally beaten or whipped. As we've already seen, what resulted from this was a profound disfigurement. By now, his body is almost unrecognizable as human. And as the people look on, they marvel at the terrible judgment of God that is falling upon this servant. But what they fail to realize is that the sins God is punishing are their very own. And the suffering of the servant is going to bring peace. His stripes are going to bring healing. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah likens the nation to sheep hopelessly wandering away from God. Every individual has turned to his own sinful way. And we cannot bear the weight of our iniquities. Therefore, the Lord, Jehovah himself, has laid our iniquities on his servant. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb or silent. So he openeth not his mouth. Not only is the servant suffering for the sins of others, but he is doing so willingly. He's offering himself up, much like a Passover lamb, to be killed for the people. And he goes on to this end without a word of complaint. Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off. Out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. The word translated here prison is elsewhere rendered oppression. And so it here seems to indicate the servant was taken by oppressive judgment. So there is a sense in which this servant has been condemned wrongfully. Justice was denied him. And not only has the servant been pierced and beaten and mutilated, he has been killed. The servant dies. He is cut off out of the land of the living. Nevertheless, he died on behalf of others. My people, the scripture says. And he will have no future generations, no seed. The implication is that his life is cut short before he can have any offspring. And after he dies, he is buried. Verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Now, in the Hebrew, the word translated the rich is actually singular with no article. So it's actually speaking of a rich man. As strange as it sounds, the sense seems to be that the servant was first assigned a grave with wicked men, but sometime, somehow he ended up being buried in the tomb of a rich man. And why? Because he was innocent. He had done no violence. He had spoken no lies. He was righteous. 
perfectly righteous. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Even though the servant was completely innocent, it pleased the Lord God to punish him. You see, it was the Lord himself who put the servant to grief, who caused him to suffer so terribly. And as grievous as it was for this to be inflicted upon an innocent man, nevertheless, there was something very pleasant in what he was accomplishing. The very soul of this servant was made an offering for sin, a guilt offering. His body, his soul... His entire being was offered up in the place of His people. He died for them. He died for their sins. But it's at this point that Isaiah makes an interesting turn because he says in the remainder of verse 10, He shall see His seed. He shall prolong His days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Now, just two verses ago, we mourned the fact that the servant would have no offspring. But now we read that even though he has died, yet he shall see his seed. What the servant has accomplished is going to result in a new generation that belongs specially to him. And remember, we just mourned that he was cut off out of the land of the living. His life was cut short. And yet now we read, he shall prolong his days. What appeared to be the end was only the beginning of a very long life. And his service to Jehovah is not over. But even after the servant's death, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, how can these things be? How can a dead man go on to have offspring and enjoy a long life? This is something like a riddle. And there is only one possible solution. The servant is to be resurrected. He will die for the sins of his people. And he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. But he won't remain there. He'll rise again from the dead. And continue his service to the Lord. Look in verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied. And that word he is still speaking of the servant. The servant himself will see what he's accomplished in his suffering and will be satisfied. So we see that not only is this work pleasing to the Lord God, it's pleasing to the servant himself. And again, what is it that he's going to accomplish? The latter part of verse 11. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. The servant, the righteous servant, will bear the sins of many people and they will be justified. That means they will be made righteous. You see, he is righteous, but he will be made to bear their guilt. They are guilty, but because of him, they will be made righteous. Their sins imputed to him. His righteousness imputed to them. This is the Lord's ultimate solution to the problem of sin. This is exactly what the Lord sent his servant to do. And he's been successful. 
And now, because of his willing obedience, the servant will be greatly exalted by the Lord. Look in verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. No one compelled the servant to suffer on behalf of sinners, but he did so voluntarily. He poured out his own soul unto death. And because of this, because the servant was willing to make himself so low, the Lord will raise him up on high in the sight of all the nations. You see, we've come full circle. Do you remember how this portion of Scripture began? Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Having justified a multitude of sinful Jews and Gentiles, the servant will be raised up to incomparable glory. And he is worthy to receive it. Isaiah completes this portion of the prophecy. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many. He was numbered alongside criminals. And he was assigned a grave with wicked men. But he was, the, he was bearing the sin of many. Finally, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, the Hebrew here can literally be rendered, he will make intercession for the transgressors. It's actually a little different than the, ver the verbs that came before. I think this contrast indicates that the servant's work of intercession is yet ongoing. Amen. He died for sinners once. But after that, he will continue to intercede for them. So the final picture we're left with of this servant is that he is Israel's exalted intercessor. Yes. This is the pinnacle of the comforting promises Isaiah is writing for the kingdom of Judah. These prophecies make up the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah. And the song of the suffering servant, which we've just read, falls right in the middle. Who is Isaiah speaking of? Who is this exalted intercessor? Who is the servant of the Lord? After what we've seen, there can be no doubt. Israel's promised intercessor came 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Everything written here of the suffering servant is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that Israelite who grew up in humble obscurity, far from Jerusalem, in a little Jewish settlement called Nazareth, a root out of a dry ground. And when the time came that he presented himself to his brethren, they rejected him. In fact, they hated him and wished to kill him. He is despised and rejected of men. And so he was arrested, and he was brought to a sham trial before the Sanhedrin, and they condemned him even though he had done nothing wrong. They brought him to Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, and even he said, I find no fault in him. Nevertheless, the Jews cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate relented, and so condemned who he knew to be an innocent man. Justice was denied him. But all throughout this travesty of justice, Jesus spoke hardly a word, so much that 
Both the high priest and Pilate marveled at his silence. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The Roman soldiers stripped him of his clothes and scourged him without mercy. The whip wrapped around his body and pulled off ribbons of flesh. They braided a crown of thorns and rammed it down upon his head. They mocked him and beat him and spit upon him. And then they crucified him. They nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. He is pierced and bruised and disfigured covered from head to foot in his own blood. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. The Jews circling his cross laughed at him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. They relished the sight of this judgment, which they considered to have fallen down from God himself. We did esteem him stricken, and smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. From the very beginning, John the Baptist had testified, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus had already preached, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The Son of Man came to give His life a ransom for many. And the night before His crucifixion, He said of the cup, This is My blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus considered this His mission, His destiny, to suffer and to die in the place of sinners. And He was cut off out of the land of the living. He died. And even after he was dead, he was pierced again. A soldier pierced his side with a spear. It fell to the Sanhedrin to arrange his burial. And they had places reserved for executed criminals. A member of the Sanhedrin, in fact, arranged the burial of Jesus. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. But he, uh, he was actually also secretly a disciple of Jesus. And Joseph was also a rich man. And in fact, he owned a tomb which had been carved out of the rock in which no body had ever been laid. And so Joseph took the body of Jesus and buried it in his own new tomb. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. But of course, he didn't remain in the grave. On the third day, he rose from the dead. Amen. The tomb was found empty. He appeared to his disciples. Uh, and he wasn't a ghost. He appeared in a physical body. He ate with them. Remember, he ate a piece of fish and a honeycomb. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And not only was he resurrected, he was also glorified. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Because of what he did, you see, because of his death, because of the work that he accomplished, he was exalted. That's why we read in Philippians, he humbled himself and became obedient unto, the, unto death, 
Therefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. He ascended into heaven where he now makes continual intercession for the saints at the right hand of God. He will make intercession for the transgressors. And from this time on, the name of Jesus Christ has been preached throughout the whole world, even among the Gentile nations and even among their kings. Jesus has sprinkled many nations. Although that wicked generation rejected him, yet multitudes of Jews and Gentiles have received him. And they have been made righteous. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. That righteous servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. How could it be anyone else? Is there another righteous Jewish man rejected by his own people who nevertheless was pierced and died for sinners who was buried in a rich man's tomb and rose again from the dead and went on to be received by many Gentile nations? There is no other. As one commentator said, there is only one brow upon which this crown of thorns will fit. And yet, Isaiah wrote it all down 700 years before it happened. I hope you see that this cannot be explained away. Uh, The fulfillment of all the details of this prophecy is not a mere coincidence. It's the finger of God. And it demands a response. What will you do with Jesus? Will you reject the suffering servant? Or will you receive him and cling to him as your personal sin bearer? There is no middle ground. You will either receive him or you will reject him. We beg you to receive him right now. You can be made righteous this moment by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who bled and died for sinners. And you'll be able to say with us, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.